Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. I don't think there's any question that the anti-Semitism on college campuses is rampant. What we see uh, across uh, America, I I shouldn't even say rampant. For many of us, we knew it was here. I think for other people, they're just surprised at how open and honest and free these people are with not only manipulation of data, but with their hate and their desire to see Israel wiped off a map. And Jews dead. There are places where they're going to city council meetings and throwing money at Jewish members. See, you're bought and paid for. I mean, living the life of this absolute and insane hate. That's happening. It's happening on college campuses, being supported by professors and administrators who are woefully silent. But is there a role for Congress to actually play in all this? I mean, is this something for Congress to look into? Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything going on at TonyKatz.com. Congressman Jim Banks joins me right now from the 3rd Congressional District of Indiana. That's the Fort Wayne area. Republican candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. I want to get to this because of a of a of a piece you you put out a letter that you have out but before i do can we get to to two things uh really quickly sir uh which is uh your vote against the continuing resolution this was the stopgap put forth by the new speaker mike johnson it works in two phases a couple of things uh have to be settled before like mid end of january a couple of things before uh the first couple of days in in february if it wasn't this it would have been a different continuing resolution that would have cut eight percent across the board except for defense spending you voted no on the first one what was the rationale well tony the continuing resolution continues the Biden-Pelosi-Schumer spending from last Congress another couple of months into this Congress. So what does that mean? That means $2 trillion annual deficits adding to an already $34 trillion national debt without any spending cuts, without any more dollars to go to secure the border, without leveraging the, uh, the spending deadline to do something to rein in wasteful spending for our country. I couldn't go along with it. I voted against the omnibus when Pelosi was the speaker. And this CR merely continues the spending pace from the last Congress. It's foolish. It's dangerous. It's why we are where we are with the $34 trillion national debt. And I'm not going to go along with it, even if my Republican leaders are telling me to. Is that seen as a repudiation of a guy you voted for for a speaker? And maybe more to the point, how is this continuing resolution different than what got Kevin McCarthy fired? Yeah, I voted against that continuing resolution too, Tony, for the exact same reason. It continues the spending levels. By, by the way, today we, we pay more on the interest for our national debt than we spend on the entire budget of the Pentagon to keep America safe and secure. So the continuing resolution back in uh, September, the continuing resolution this week continues that pace. I, I, I don't care what you call it. Um, it for me, I, I, I can't go along with it. I, I, I voted against it because it's wasteful spending. Again, I voted against all of the omnibus big spending bills when Donald Trump was president. I voted against all of them as Joe Biden has been president, 
A $34 trillion national debt is the biggest threat to the American dream for my kids and your kids and your grandkids that we've ever seen in this country. I'm not going to go along with it, whether it's under a Republican or a Democrat. This brings us to a second thing that took place, which was Marjorie Taylor Greene, the representative from Georgia, uh, moving forward with wanting to impeach uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. And that did not go through. And people noted uh, in my beloved Indiana, your beloved Indiana, uh, that you were not a no vote. You did not vote. And people want to know why. Yeah, uh, Congressman Larry Bouchon from Evansville and I traveled to Africa. We were in Djibouti and then in Kenya. We visited a remote military base uh, in Kenya to visit our Indiana National Guard troops. 130 of our Hoosier heroes are deployed in Manda Bay, Kenya, on an important mission. I serve on the Armed Services Committee. Uh, Tony, I've been deployed myself. I know what it's like to leave my family and go serve abroad. And, and, and Larry Bouchon and I were able to travel with the governor of Oklahoma, both of the senators from Oklahoma, to go visit our troops. We, we got back late on Monday night, but let me make this very clear. The vote on Monday night was not uh, for impeaching Mayorkas. It was a procedural vote that Democrats forced to send the impeachment vote back to the Homeland Security Committee. I spoke with Marjorie Taylor Greene on the floor yesterday. And we'll, we'll, I, and by the way, I fully support impeaching Mayorkas, but there are a bunch of Republicans who voted with the Democrats to table the impeachment vote, to bring it back later, to stall it. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to keep pushing for a final vote for impeachment. So I, I hope that happens very soon. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas has been... Uh, uh, has done a horrible job uh, in his role. Uh, the border is wide open. By the way, I support impeaching Joe Biden for these reasons as well. Opening the border wide open, the, the humanitarian crisis at the border, the drug crisis in our country. Over a million illegals released, processed and released into the United States in the last year alone and all of the crime and the other issues that have come with it. There are lots of reasons to impeach Mayorkas and Joe Biden. But the vote on Monday was not an impeachment vote. And anybody that tells you that is lying about it. It was a procedural motion to table it. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to keep pushing to get that uh, final impeachment vote to the floor as soon as possible. Talking to Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District, candidate for Senate, Republican candidate for Senate in Indiana. Were you in the House yesterday when the word went forth that you weren't allowed to leave um, uh, the office buildings? You weren't allowed to enter the office buildings because the pro-Palestinian, which I often view as pro-Hamas protesters, uh, were out there in, in force, whether it be in front of the DNC or uh, trying to make their case for ceasefire in this very, what is described as violent way. Were you uh, in your office at that time? No, we, uh, I, I was gone from uh, the office buildings at that point. Our voting, our voting uh, was over earlier in the day, but I saw the videos and you know, heard from some of my colleagues who were in the House office buildings. And uh, you, can see, you can see from the videos, we, very violent protests. You had, you had U.S. Capitol Police officers who were injured in the process, they need to be handled um, in the same way that the January 6th protesters who harmed police officers uh, were uh, were handled. So I'm going to be calling for the, the Justice Department to prosecute these uh, these protesters that injured our our heroes here on Capitol Hill, the Capitol Police officers who keep us safe every single day. So we'll see if there is a if if uh, the same set of rules and justice are applied to those protesters. As those on January 6th, I, I, 
I hope that'll be the case. To to this end, in this conversation about uh, anti-Semitism, sir, this was this was from your team. Rep Banks, that's you, uh, probes alleged anti-Semitism at IU student government. IU is Indiana University. You, uh, being a member of the House Education Workforce Committee, request a briefing from Pam Witten, who's the president of Indiana University, regarding the university's response to anti-Semitism within the Indiana University student government. Now, when, when IU first put out their statement regarding the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. Uh, This uh, was the statement, and it was very, very generic. IU is heartbroken over the horrific violence that has occurred over the past few days. With heartfelt empathy and compassion, we stand ready to provide comprehensive counseling and support services to assist our students, faculty, and staff affected by these uh, uh, attacks. And then she ends it with, or it ends with, uh, let us continue IU's long-held tradition as a caring community that supports one another through challenging times. This was seen as wholly unacceptable and a a level of not recognizing the brutality of the attack. As the Indiana Daily Student then pointed out, a new statement was released. This was a very strong statement from Pam Witten, clearly one that she had to be kind of pushed into giving. But you're not talking about what Pam Witten said or didn't say. You're talking about the Indiana University student government what is it that made you think a probe is is the way to go? Well, first of all, we've seen a giant increase on college campuses in America in the cases of anti-Semitism, a 400% increase in cases over the last year. And yesterday, Tony, in, in the education committee that I'm a part of in the House, we had a, a, a hearing uh, in our committee on this specific issue. So I became aware yesterday of at first, it was two members of the Indiana University student government who resigned in protest of the student body president and alleged remarks that she had made online about uh, Jewish students. Later, I've been told five more members of the student government have resigned in protest. And I want to know what the hell is going on there. Why, why, why isn't uh, Indiana University doing more to make sure that Jewish students on campus feel safe to go to class. We've, we've heard reports all over the country, but also at IU that Jewish students don't feel safe. And we have a, we have a responsibility that on a college campus, especially one with a rich diversity, like at Indiana University, I'm a graduate of IU. So most, it's a very diverse and rich uh, place to attend school, but to make sure that our students feel safe, especially Jewish students right now with what's going on around the world and the rise of anti-Semitic behavior on college campuses to make sure that they feel safe. So I'm asking the president to brief me. I have a good relationship with the administration at Indiana University. We, we, we dialogue on a lot of important issues that go on there. And never forget, IU is the recipient of a lot of federal funding that helps them run the well, university. Can we say that, sir, about a series of, can we say it about Purdue? Can we say it about Ball State, Butler University, University of Indianapolis, uh, Notre Dame? Uh, we could talk about Wabash. We, talk about DePaul. We, we have a tremendous amount of universities in the state of Indiana. Uh, is this issue, does this issue not exist uh, on other campuses? It, it might. It, it very well might. But the reports of student members of the stu- student government resigning in protest at IU uh, led to the letter. If, if, uh, if a constituent or a student from Purdue University reaches out to me about 
incidents at Purdue or any other college campus, I'll be happy to reach out to the administration of those colleges to, to ask for more information or briefings on what's going on there, too. I mean, none, none of that changes the fact that anti-Semitism on college campuses is growing, and we have a responsibility as leaders to do everything that we can to make sure that students feel safe to go to class, especially let's, students let's, at a time like this. Let's engage the responsibility parts. Are talking to you, Congressman uh, Jim Banks of the Indiana Third District, that's the Fort Wayne area, candidate Republican candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. Let's go back to your statement. It starts with Rep. Banks probes alleged anti-Semitism at IU student government. This would make one think that you, as a member of Congress, are launching a probe, a congressional probe, into things at Indiana University. Is that the role of Congress, to engage a probe uh, into uh, what's happening in a student government on a college campus? I don't see why not, Tony. I mean, Indiana University receives millions of taxpayer dollars from the federal government. And in this case, I, I take I take reports of anti-Semitism very seriously, especially at a publicly funded university in my home state, that being Indiana University. So I'm sure that President Witten will respond, and I'm sure that she and I will have a healthy dialogue about what more can be done at IU or other universities in the state of Indiana to make sure that our Jewish students feel safe. I think that's very important. That's why I wrote the letter, and I look forward to her response. If, if, if I'm asking you uh, what else should be done, do you have ideas or thoughts about what else should be done? I, I do, Tony. I, I've called on the Biden administration to uh, send uh, any student who is here on a, on a visa on college campuses who has, who has spoken out in favor of the violent acts uh, of Hamas to be sent back to where they came from. That's the first thing that, that can be done. That, and, a, and a sensible thing that can be done to make our college campuses feel more safe as many students who are here on, on visas to attend our, uni our American universities who speak out in favor of Hamas, they, they should be sent back to the countries that they come from. That's, that's the first thing that we can do. And then the second thing we can do is codify the Trump administration's anti-Semitism executive order that he signed while he was president that um, that restricts uh, Title IX public funding to universities who don't do enough uh, to combat anti-Semitism on college campuses. So those are two things that we can do. I've, I've co-sponsored that bill. I think Mike Lawler, congressman from New York, um, is the author of that legislation. So those are two things that Congress can do. But at the same time, it's, uh, you know, that having this conversation with leaders and administrators from college campuses, especially in our home state, about what 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 more can be done there is something that leaders at the state level and the federal level need to engage in more as well. And that's what I'm doing. Would it would it be um, what would the response be if, if someone like Pam Witten, the president of, of IU, said to you, Congressman, you have a Congress filled, lousy with Jew haters, from Congressman Andre Carson right here in Indiana to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Ocasio-Cortez, Ayanna Presley, Congressman Jamal Bowman, and a host of others. Maybe you should focus on Congress and let me worry about the campus. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that'll be her response. Um, that's not her style. Her style is productive, and I'm sure she'll want to engage in a healthy dialogue with me as a member of Congress 
on what where we can work together to combat these issues. That that's my expectation. But but Tony, you're you're pointing out something that's very important. The the American left in this country has has abandoned a, a key a longtime key constituency of their party, that being the the Jewish voters in this country. They have they have long abandoned that key constituency, and you're seeing evidence of that play out in the country right now as they turn a blind eye to these issues that's happening everywhere. All, uh, you, you, you pointed out the squad in Congress. I mean, the, the behavior of the, of the squad, the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic actions, behavior, and, and language that they use in the nation's capital is something that we're seeing happen all over the country, and it's, it's time that we do more to combat it. Congressman Jim Banks of the Indiana 3rd District, Republican candidate for Senate in the state of Indiana. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We'll talk more about this. There's This is interesting for sure. And I don't know if I'm totally there yet. I, I want to do something about the Jew hate. I just don't know if the answer is congressional probe. You talk about the money, but now we talk about free speech. We talk about those students who aren't Americans. I get the point there. But maybe where there's a a larger conversation to be had. And remember, I'm a guy affected by this. But then again, so are you. We will discuss it. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. This is Tony Katz Today. In an act of just absolute barbarism, right before the holidays... Southwest Airlines has decided to raise their prices on alcohol. My God! Okay, it's happening. Everybody stay calm. What's the procedure, everyone? What's the procedure? Stay calm! What's going on? Holy crap, I am freaking out. What do they think they're doing? We're already having a difficult time, enough time on planes. Now you're going to take away the beer? That's, that is wholly unacceptable. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Southwest increasing the price of onboard alcohol offerings. So uh, the price of beer goes from $6 to $7. Oh, God! And I think, is it spirits? Is it spirits or a mixed drink? Uh, Liquor goes from 7 to 9. OMG, are you kidding me right now? I am not. How much more difficult are they going to make being on a plane? I mean, I mean, what next? No hard drugs in the bathroom? I love cocaine! Hold on, wait, what's that? You're not, you're not allowed You're not allowed to do what? You're not allowed to You're not allowed to do You're not allowed to do hard drugs in the bathroom? Huh? Wow. I've been doing this flying all wrong. Just stop it with the price increases. I get it. You got inflationary pressures, everything else. They got to make a living and they want less drunk people on the plane because the people have been a giant pain in the you know what. Sometimes you just want a beer. Sometimes just just a beer. You just want to relax for five minutes in that cramped nonsense seat. And, and, and you're sitting next to somebody, they're too big for the middle seat, but they were last on the plane, so now you suffer. Just let me have a beer in peace. Love of the Lord. Shouldn't be this difficult. Find everything at Tony Katz.
Com. Be a part of what we're doing uh, over there. What's going on with this economy? Dr. Matt Will has that next. This is Tony Katz today. I know that everybody out there, well, I shouldn't say everybody out there, certainly everybody out there in the administration wants to tell you that inflation has been tamed. It's cured, people. We're all just fine. You see, everybody got a vaccine and now there's no more inflation. Wait, that's not how it works? No, it's not how it works. And the inflation is still there. Cooling, slowing down, that would be great. Gone, It's not. Why are we saying that it is? And what are the numbers telling us? And why do I keep reading these stories about how the 4% rule is back? I mean, what the hell is the 4% rule? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Dr. Matt Will joins me right now. Economist at the University of Indianapolis. Dr. Matt Will. W-I-L-L. Dr. Matt Will on the Twitter Xbox. This 4% rule is about your retirement accounts and your withdrawal rate. But that is, I had never heard of it, not being an expert in the field. Why is this all of a sudden a conversation in pages of investment news and the pages of the Wall Street Journal? What's going on? Well, you know, I'm kind of glad we're talking about this because this is the, I'm sorry to say this for ratings, it's the boring blocking and tackling of finance. And this is the stuff people need to know in their daily lives. So the 4% rule used to be the 5% rule, then it was the 3% rule, which is how much do you need to take out of your savings every year when you retire so you can live for the rest of your life? It used to be 5% many years ago in the booming 80s. Then it dropped down to 3.3% in these record low interest rates we used to have a couple of years ago. And now it's back up to four. So it simply says that if you retire today, you could take 4% out every year of your savings, and you could live the rest of your life comfortably. Now, there's some assumptions in there, very important assumptions. So people shouldn't go out and just, oh, I'm going to implement this rule without the assumptions. But that's basically what it says. So the idea is you have your investments, you can pull 4% out, was it a year? Is that how you described it? It starts at 4%. So like right now, today, Tony, if you retired, you could pull out 4% and then increase it by inflation every year And after the end of 30 years, you would still have money left over. You'd still be comfortable. You could leave something to your kids. Not that they deserve it. Come on, let's admit it. But you could leave it to your kids if you wanted to. But it assumes that you have about 40% in stocks and 60% in bonds. Okay. You're already, already, I've lost my mind. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm never going to be able to retire. It'll be radio at 95. Walk me through it very, very slowly. Okay. You're 65 years old and you decide to retire and you have this nest egg. In the report that Morningstar did, they said, pretend you have a million dollars. You could take out 4% of that money every year. So starting today, you could take out 4% of a million dollars. So you could take out $40,000 and you could live on that today. And then next year you can take out, you know, let's say there's 5% inflation. You could take out you know, $42,000 next year. And the next year, take out a little bit more and you can take out and you can live for the rest of your life by taking out 4% today plus inflation for the rest of your life. So your retirement is set. How many people 
can actually do that kind of thing. I guess it depends on what we consider a retirement. Is there a number? Is there a dollar amount where this concept works? Well, it depends on how much you need to live on. Okay, this study that did a million dollars, I mean, I think $40,000 a year may may not be enough, but maybe you're getting a social security check, maybe your spouse is getting a social security check. So, you know, it could be enough. So it depends on how much you need to live. If you need to live on 40,000 a year plus social security, this is probably about 20, 25,000, then this is fine. You could live for the rest of your life on a million dollar savings, which Tony, that's not unreasonable if you've been saving your money over your life until you reach age 65. If you've been using your IRA account, your 401k, you should be in this good position. And they're just telling you how much of it you can spend. And I'm sorry, I'm going long on this, but if you spend too much, if you spend 6% a year or five, like it used to be, you'll run out of money before you die. Talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, uh, the, the, the story here is that for many, many people, it's the recognition that in order to really build that retirement, you have to start young. You have to keep putting into it. You have to pay yourself first, of course. If you're somebody who had bad times, I'll talk about me as, as a very personal basis, and you're getting restarted in your 40s, it is very, very difficult to catch up because time is not on your side. So therefore, concepts like this, and this is why I wanted to go over it a couple times, concepts like this don't necessarily apply if you're starting later. But you, even if you start later, you can still do it. Okay, let's, let's, you, know, you brought yourself up. Okay, if you're in your mid or early 40s and you save, right now you can put $6,500 a year. People say, oh, I don't want to spend that. You buy a car, you buy a nice watch, you buy some wonderful cigars or bourbon. Well, allocate $6,500 a year. Put it into a savings account. I tell my students right now when they get their first job, put $6,500 in. They're thinking, oh, that's a lot of money. They're making nothing last year. This year they're making $60,000 a year. You can afford it. And if you start when you're young, oh, You'll be a multimillionaire by the time you retire. And all you have to do is put it in and forget it. Kind of like the old commercial. Set it and forget it. You'll be a multimillionaire when you retire. Which is trying to teach that to people because the the desire is for the immediate gratification and it comes with youth and it comes with seeing what other people do because they're not engaging in in some level of, of planning. This This is... This is the 101s, you know, you talk about as the blocking and tackling of, of, of finance. I think it's the stuff we should be teaching in high school. Absolutely uh, pay yourself first. But the question is, putting it into what? What is, I mean, I'm not looking for investing advice per se. But if you were on a bar stool giving advice, what is the investing vehicle that starts you down this path? If you're young... I will tell you right now, put it in an index fund. Put it in an index. That's, and again, if you don't know what that is, talk to your financial advisor. Talk to you know, one of these low-cost, no-cost people, Vanguard, Fidelity, Schwab. I'll throw some of those names out there because those are low-cost financial advisors. They put you in an index fund. You earn 9.5% for the rest of your life in equities because that's what they've earned historically. That's not bad. It's, it's that basic, but you got to start young. Just put it in there. Don't think about it. Don't try to pick stocks. 
pick winners, pick losers. Don't do it. And, you know, you mentioned financial literacy. I've run three different financial literacy organizations. This is very important. And I'm always saddened when I hear the number of people that don't know the basics of how to save and plan for their future. What if you're not young? What if you are starting later? Do you still talk about those things? And by the way, we should be clear. I have no financial relationship with Dr. Matt Will. We do no investing together. I have asked the man plenty of questions, but but nothing like that. It's just, we're going down this road. I'm like, all right, now I'm, now I'm curious. Now I want to know. So don't ever take investment advice from me. Get your own damn professional. Don't blame me when it all goes to pot and you're living in a cardboard box. But if you make the money, remember, I should be invited to swim in the pool. Um, what if, what, what if you're older? Is it the same philosophy? You know what it is, but Tony, I don't know your exact age, but you know, you can put $7,500 in this year, but put a mixture, put, let's say half of it in an index fund and half of it in bonds and that combination. Now, not a bond fund, laddered bonds. That's a little bit more complicated for this discussion, but you should put it in some bonds because they're safe. As you know, you can earn 5% right now in short-term bonds. Well, put in long-term bonds. Earn 4.7% on a 10-year treasury. There's nothing wrong with that. Lock it in. That's a darn good rate to earn for the next 10 years. So you should put a mixture of bonds, which are safe, and a mixture of stocks. And as you get older, you reduce the stocks and you increase the bonds. Now let's move into some other subjects, which have to do with the fact that the Consumer Price Index came out Uh, And uh, people took a look at inflation and said, my gosh, 3.2% on all items, 4% on all items, less food and and, and energy over the last, uh, unadjusted for the last 12 months. And this month, all items were flat. Inflation was flat. We have solved the problem. Hooray. (laughs) Is inflation over? Um, No. But it's in the right direction. And we have to, you know, I am very quick to criticize this administration, and I will criticize them still. But I will say that right now, inflation is heading in the right direction. But it's not because of Biden. It's because of the Republicans in the White House and Jerome Powell. Republicans in Congress, I would assume you meant. Pardon? Republicans in Congress, not in the White House. Oh, (laughs) sorry. Sorry for the Freudian slip. Um, yes. So, of course, the people in Congress have, have kind of a plan. Now, I'm not saying it's good or bad. You're better at commenting on the politics of that than I am. But they have a plan to try to get spending somewhat under control. Jerome Powell is doing his job. So in the boxing match that you and I talk about all the time, Biden is losing and the rest of the country is winning at the moment. But, and, and at the moment, we must admit it, the numbers are decent. And when you dig down into them, they're decent. Even under the hood, they're pretty decent. What exactly under the hood made you say, okay, we could be doing something right here? Um, because when I look at core inflation, for example, it's 0.2 for the month. 0.2, that's pretty good. That's 2.4 for the year. That's not bad. That's a decent level. I'm, I would, I'm not happy with that level. It's still too high, but it's better. And so I like those numbers. When I look at the ISM report, that Institute for Supply Management, their manufacturing cost is actually down. And the PPI, as you indicated, which came out, is also sees things moving down. So 
there are some indicators that things are looking better, but they're still too high and there's still the boxing match going on. So the producer price index for final demand fell half a percent in October and the index for final demands good fell goods fell 1.4%. Uh, so what is this? This is what it costs to actually manufacture the things in the warehouses. You take from this also a solid sign. No, oh no, this is a one. No, this is a one data point. Last two, last three months were terrible. No, this is one month in the moving in the right direction. Do not misinterpret that things are great. We've had three months of disastrous numbers. We have one month that's good. Let's take it at that. So notice it. Don't necessarily think that we're we're anywhere out of, of the woods. Exactly. You talk often about the the fight between Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, and Joe Biden. I understand your point about the Republicans in the House. It's because they've been able to, through whether you want to call it smart fiscal policy or total mismanagement of the House of Representatives, they haven't engaged any spending. Only now do we have the continuing resolution that gets to the House and Senate, which I think people actually uh, like. Maybe they would have liked less spending, but it will keep things at the same spending level, not increase spending. Uh, how much does the market look at the intransigence in D.C. and say, oh, this is excellent? A lot. Oh my gosh, I can't emphasize this strongly enough. Wall Street hates Washington. They love gridlock. When there's divided government and nothing's getting done, oh, Wall Street's jumping for joy. I mean, today, today the market reacted positively to Janet Yellen's announcement that the Treasury is going to start a very consistent, even policy, predictable policy of Treasury issues. It's like, oh goodness, so we're not going to get a dump of multi-billion dollars out of the blue? No, they're going to be consistent. So Wall Street doesn't like Washington. They prefer gridlock and nothing gets done. Um, and, you know, let's admit it. The previous Republicans running the Congress were not necessarily the opposition. They were just spending light, but they were still spending. Oh, spending slower is not less spending that much is is very very true dr matt will economist at the university of indianapolis d-r-m-a-t-t-w-i-l-l dr matt will on the x twitter box right there always appreciate you taking the time more to get to i'm tony katz this is tony katz today so tiktok is now bringing bin laden back all of a sudden osama bin laden's a good guy and oh his letter to america you know he was right about so much Whew. okay well if you wanted an argument for banning tiktok here you go tony katz tony katz today find everything at tonycats.com the fundamental issue uh, that is marxism is that it puts an end to the idea of the concept of right versus wrong Everything becomes permissible and everything becomes this pseudo-intellectual exercise of, well, there is no well. There is no well when talking about Osama bin Laden and the murder of 3,000 Americans. And there is no well when discussing America's role in the, in the long history of the world. It's a weird thing that people are looking for perfection. Where do you expect to find this? From Osama bin Laden? Bitch, please. 
from Hamas, those terrorist bastards, from uh, the, the Iroquois, from the Miami? Where do you expect to find this? From the white guys? From the black guys? From the Jews? From the Irish? From the Christian? Where do you expect to find this perfection? I'm here to tell you it doesn't exist. I'm here to tell you it doesn't exist. This idea of stolen land, for example. You live on stolen land. This land was stolen from all land has been stolen in one way or another. All land somehow and in some way was occupied or stolen. The whole commentary is nonsensical. The conversation is, who is living there now and how are they living? Hamas provides no value to the people of Gaza. And the people of Gaza would be better without Hamas. Osama bin Laden provided no value. A society run by Sharia is not a society worth living in. If you want to argue against U.S. foreign policy, you're more than welcome to. The answer is the murder of 3,000 people in the U.S. by hijacking airplanes? Well, you know, it's just the chickens coming home to roost. You mean the same nation that set the world free and ended fascism, not as a leader of fascism, but ended fascism, is the problem? Oh, we could talk about this for days. But if you want to know what Marxism does, it tries to find these levels of moral equivalency, and they don't exist. That's the part you got to keep remembering. I'll discuss more of this in the days ahead. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. Tomorrow, everyone, take care.